Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the University of Hong Kong and to this um, wonderful session with this very tall gentleman here, Ian Bostridge. And it's uh, wonderful to have him here because we've been trying to get him to come and sing Schubert for, well, it seems like forever. And it's amazing. It's a dream come true that he's here. And he's, as you know, he'll be giving two concerts uh, on Friday and on Saturday. And uh, that's going to be a treat. So I hope you have your tickets uh, ready for that. It'll be wonderful. So welcome to the University of Hong Kong. Nice yes. to be here. Maybe a... <laughs> First time in the university, but not in Hong Kong. And you're on, you're on, on tour, is that right? Yes, I've just been in, um, in Tokyo doing uh, an um, orchestral co concert, um, some Mahler songs from the Des Knabenhorn set, and, uh, and then some Schubert. Right, and, right. And some Schumann and some Britain as well. Right. And I gather that in Japan, uh, the audience sang along with some of the songs? They sort of mouth the word, they know the text. So yeah. Sometimes uh, they're very leader is, is quite a strong. There's quite a strong leader tradition in. Right, in, in, it's not going to happen, you know, in Hong Kong. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm quite I pleased. Mean, <laughs> I used to work with a. I used to work with a very famous Japanese pianist who used to sort of sing under her breath while I was, um, <laughs> uh, which was quite distracting. So I'm quite <laughs> right. pleased. <laughs> well, uh, well, well, Japan has a very uh, long history with with Germany, and so, you know that that whole leader tradition is just yeah. part of that. So actually, it's great to be able to do this in Hong Kong, but in a way, it's a kind of an introduction uh, to leader here. So it actually is quite an insignificant um, yeah. event that you're right. sort of right. making happen, as it were. Right. Yeah, and also the other, I mean, the ironic thing is, I mean, you you started life um, really as an academic. You were mm -hmm. uh, a junior research fellow in Oxford yes. uh, in history. Yeah. You know, and um, so, in a way, I don't really have to have a dialogue with you. You can just give a lecture. Right? You can just <laughs> I'm very nervous of giving a lecture. I never actually gave, as an academic, I never got to the stage of giving a lecture. I've given lectures since, but uh, I never. it always seemed a very intimidating thing to have to. And I always remember that my, I have many friends who are academics, and uh, particularly I've, a lot of friends who are philosophers for some reason, and they, they always, the, 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 pro the process of beginning finally to give lectures about things about which they knew nothing was very, they were suddenly having to give, you know, they specialised on something very, very narrow for their doctorates, and then suddenly they were having to give a whole course so survey on sort of, from, I don't know, St. Augustine to, to, to Wittgenstein and know about everything about everything, and that seemed very intimidating to me. It is so, very scary. Yeah. So you decided to be a singer instead, yeah, which, which is, is less scary. Which is less scary, yeah. <laughs> I'm not quite sure that that's the case, but anyway, it's wonderful. I mean, but it, in, a, in a way, it's a very unusual sort of a career background. So it, it has being an academic in, the, in your former life, as it were, made you a very different kind of artist or distinguishes you in any way in the way you um, function? I, I don't think so because I think p performance is a very um, it's something that's lived in the moment and for me it's about a certain I mean it depends on the repertoire but certainly with, with music that can be broadly thought of as romantic it's about a sort of intensity and an extremeness of expression and trying to carry an audience with you uh, for, for example if you're doing a song recital it's it's actually very it's made up of you know 20, 25 songs, and what you ideally want is for nobody to sort of cough in between them and to draw draw them through, and for people not to get bored and to to sort of I don't know, sort of uh, uh, hypnotise them in some way. So that's very different from the process of of 
academic, certainly of academic research, which, as I said, is all, I've, all I did. I, didn't, I wasn't an academic performer. I mean, no, doubtless there are many academic performers who, are, you know, have that sort of um, uh, performance-style thing going the on. The lecturing, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know who I can think of particularly. I mean, I didn't... I always remember being... No, I mean, I can't think of any particularly at Oxford. No, we're usually quite boring, actually. No, <laughs> <laughs> no um, there, are, there was a very impressive guy when I arrived at Oxford who, who gave eight lectures on Max Weber, the German sociologist, without notes, which I thought was really pretty amazing. But um, Especially because he'd only just invented them. Because um, it was a new subject. But, no, I mean, I, I, I do... I like to study, I, I like to read around a lot of some of the stuff I do, but it's actually quite, um, I'm quite inconsistent uh, in that sometimes I'll do a piece of music and not, not learn that much about it. Uh, and sometimes I'll go into it very deeply. And sometimes it's, it's really about feeding the imagination and making sure that you will always return to the same pieces with something new. Right. And you, you mentioned several times that uh, in, in your writings that you know, you're not trained, as it were, as... Uh, no, we're not trained in music. I'm not quite mm. sure exactly what you mean by mm. that, because obviously you must yeah. be very trained in music. But uh, I mean, you, you felt that you, you somehow you were not a musicologist, or you were not. Um, I, di I didn't. I never learnt an instrument. Um, I, d I never really grappled with any music theory in a systematic way, um, and so I'm. I, I've picked up bits and pieces on the way since I was since I started being a singer, but it's pr it's pretty, as I say, pretty unsystematic. Um, so I can, I mean, in, I wrote a book about Winterizer, and in it I sort of address some points which are sort of not particularly profoundly analytical, but I mean issues about how you play uh, triplets. Uh, but I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I don't have a deep uh, knowledge of how to name things musically, but I think a lot of it, a lot of a musician's, a performing musician's knowledge is tacit knowledge of some sort. Right, I mean, usually, I mean, you, you don't have to analyze, I mean, you kind of analyze it in the performance, I mean, in the way you interpret it, right? Yes, and I mean, I suppose with, with what we, what you'd sort of call mainstream, I don't know, German classical music, it's, it's very obvious what's going on because it's about tension and release. Um, and I, but I suppose I carry that, I don't know how it works with the p other pieces that I sing. Uh, and how I, I suppose I just find an emotional, an emotional connection with them. I find a way partly through the words, but it's the words plus the music, and it's it's a form of acting, really. Right, right. Um, yeah. No, I think actually German music, I mean classical music and all that, is uh, highly dramatic. Mm. In fact, the whole operatic basis is very important. But let's move on to talk about Schubert, mm -hmm. uh, the two song cycles. Um, maybe you could uh, explain a little bit about these um, two song cycles to, to the audience, just to sort of fill them in a little bit, because they're quite similar in a way, because they're both about journeys, and yeah. they both end badly, as yes. it were. Yeah. So maybe you could just say a little bit about the two and how they are similar and also different. Yeah, well, the, the first one, Die Schöne Müllerin, the beautiful Miller girl, is, it's, it's takes a set of poems that were actually written by um, a man called Wilhelm Müller, but they came out of a sort of, um, a sort of domestic game. They they took they, they they were all sitting around of an evening and they invented these these characters and so it's it's got a sort of um, self conscious archness about it in its original form, and it's got um, it's got introductory poems which sort of distance from the story. The story is, is a very simple one. It's that um, uh, a, a journeyman miller is is travelling you know to look for a new job. He finds a new job, falls in love with a girl talks but can't really talk to her he's a bit he's 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 a bit 
scared of her, talks a lot to this bubbling brook, which gives lots of opportunities for bu bubbly br brook music in the piano. Um, and um, he thinks maybe she's, she likes him, but uh, of course then the hairy hunter comes along and uh, this masculine macho figure and he manages to, uh, you know, get her and uh, the, in the end the miller boy throws himself into the, into the mill and the cycle ends with a, with a lullaby sung by the, by the mill itself. So it's a sort of, in one sense it's sort of very, it's faux naive. Um, and arch and artful as poetry. But what Schubert did, um, and he, he composed it in the year in which he was uh, diagnosed with syphilis and probably wrote some of it in hospital, um, he stripped away the irony. He took away all the, all the poems that are in the, as it were, the narrator's voice, which comment on them, and he made it much simpler in that way. Uh, and it's really... It's actually, although it's simple, it's, it's very deep because it's about the connection somehow between, a sort of Freudian connection between sex and death. Um, but it's written in a, the music is, um, the music's sort of simple. I mean, a lot of the songs are what we call strophic songs, so that you have the same music repeated four or five times for different verses. Some of them are, are through composed. Um, and, um, it's really the, f it's, you know, this was a very early point, 1823, for the, for the song cycle. It's, um, it, it, you know, Beethoven had, had written one, Andy found a Galipta, but that's a very short sort of 30 minute thing. And this thing is an hour long. It's a big, it's a big piece. It's a lot to take on. Um, so that's Schoener Müllerin, a journey from uh, sort of, you can either, it's interesting how you treat the Miller boy. You can either see him as being a sort of ordinary, sort of uh, rustic bloke who, who, who arrives in our purview as sort of, you know, quite ordinary and but slowly goes crazy through the course of the, of the um, cycle. Or you can start out thinking that he's probably a little bit psychotic at the beginning because he's talking to rivers, which is a rather strange thing to do. Um, and that, 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 those are the choices you make as a, as a performer, how to have where, where the flip comes. Um, uh, so what do you do? I mean, do you um, take I, tend, kind of I tend to be the I tend to be uh, towards the lunatic side, but I right. try and pull it back. I mean, one of the things about performing is when you've gone too far in one direction, you think, oh my god, I better pull back and, and try and get a bit less expressionistic, a, a bit more classically balanced. Uh, but there are so many ways of, of doing a piece like like um, because there's there's so much going on, there's so many interrelating parts to to, to and once you take a once you make a decision in one song, then it's going to have an impact on how you do some, another song, and it's different every time. Um, so, in 1827, Schubert discovered 12 um, poems by the same poet. Um, he just uh, Wilhelm Müller. He discovered them in a um, in a in a banned publication. This was the period in Vienna of of of, of the Metternich reaction after the after the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. So. Political life was, it wasn't exactly, it wasn't tyrannical, it was just very repressed. Politics wasn't something you were supposed to discuss and people got together to make music in their houses and they didn't, they steered away from politics pretty much. But as a result, there's a lot of coded political commentary and Wilhelm Müller, is one who, who actually lived, lived in Germany, in one of the German states in Anhalt-Dessau, was, um, he was one of these people who is making s sort of secret coded political 
uh, gestures of opposition against this 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 repression, this this lack of. But it was particularly uh, connected with. It was liberal minded, but it was also it was nationalistic because what Metternich, who was the Austrian Chancellor, or the Habsburg Chancellor, what he was trying to do was stop German nationalism destroying the Austro. Uh, Austrian, the Habsburg Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, because it was a non, um, non-national, uh, a sort of uh, what do you call it, uh, a multinational, international um, organization. So Miller composed this, uh, wrote these this, this twelve poems called Winterreise, Winter's Journey, and that in itself is a sort of metaphor for um, this is the ice site. This is the ice time. Everything's frozen. Nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. Things are repressed. It's a it's a it's a metaphor, a, a political metaphor that was taken up uh, much later by the much more famous poet Heinrich Heine, who, who was greatly influenced by by um, by Wilhelm Miller. Anyway, Schubert found these poems, and he, I think, in a great was totally seized by them, and in a great hurry composed. 12 songs. Um, and then some months later, um, he discovered that Miller had actually written 12 more poems but in, and had put them all in a different order, which was probably a bit annoying. Uh, but instead of um, sort of re reordering it all, he just he took out the extra ones and, and composed them in order except one of them he reversed because he wanted a fast song in a particular place. And, and so we have, have this, this enormous, enormous um, leader thing, which stands right at the beginning of the leader tradition. And leader in the 19th century were huge. But this, this monument, this 70, 75 minute long piece, is it's the greatest work in the leader tradition probably. And it stands almost right at the beginning. And it's a it's a journey, but it's a journey in which nothing much happens because we don't. it starts with... Um, the protagonist, uh, like a sort of Byronic hero, leaving the scene of a, of a nameless crime. I mean, it's not really a crime. It's something to do with a girl, and he's leaving because either she, he can't cope or she doesn't like him, or, but we're never really told. He leaves the house, and he goes out into a winter landscape. And he, I suppose what he does through the 24 songs of Winterizer is to confront issues of identity, mortality, aging... Uh, um, loneliness, all the sort of very sort of abstract qualities of the human condition, and that's why it stands as one of the sort of great works of. I mean, I, 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 one of the reasons I wrote a book about it is because I think it's it's sort of hugely appreciated in the leader world. It's hugely appreciated in the musical world, but I don't think it people, you know. Now, I, st I still sort of believe in a canon of great artistic works. Uh, I probably have a very narrow canon, a, a canon that's much too narrow. But Winterizer is one of those pieces that I th like, you know, I don't know, the novels of Tolstoy or, um, or I mean, all sorts of things in many different cultures that, that, that need to be confronted or you're missing out if you're not confronting them. So I, j I just wanted to um, put that out there. See, I tricked you into giving a lecture. After all, <laughs> um, I'm so clever. But no. I'm now so aware, in fact, of how limited, because I'm not now in in in, in Europe. I'm so aware of how I'm i my my particular acculturation or my my particular culture is actually very narrow. And you know, Winterizer is a it's a very important work. But I, I'm not 
I'm not aware of, of so much of, 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 of the great works of, of non-Western culture. But uh, I should just add, it's, it's a great book, by the way. So, uh, and it's actually available in our bookshop. So you Yay. can go, go and go and buy it. It's terrific. Um, so uh, so, so Venturizer, obviously, is uh, a kind of also a journey towards a kind of uh, po a possible suicide or death in some form as well, right? It's very similar to... Uh, the Shona Muller in, uh, yeah. in, in that sense. I think it's a journey towards the the, the inability to, uh, to to embrace. I mean, it's it's rather Beckett, it's it's rather you know it's like Sam, it's, it's like a Samuel Beckett play. Samuel Beckett loved Vinterizer. Um and it's got it's rather a Samuel Beckett sort of landscape, you know, snow and a tree and very bare, and and it's all about you know um, failing better or about carrying on. You, you're, the only thing you've got to do is carry on. You can't stop going. So that, 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 it's non-narrative in that way. It's right, it's kind of, of like Schubert and Waiting for Godot kind of yeah. put together. Yeah. Cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about your own um, kind of experience of Schubert because obviously you've been singing these two song cycles for a very long time. I mean, it must be like almost 30 years or, or more. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, st I started singing Die Schöne Müllerin as an, as an adolescent because I had I sort of... Uh, modeled my own experience on the song cycle in some strange way because I fell in love with a girl who didn't really like me and went off with a guy from the tennis club. Right. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't play tennis. So he was like the hairy hunter. Right. And uh, I used to walk up and down the street singing the songs under my breath, oh, sort of happy, hoping to catch a glimpse of her. So that's Shona Mullen. Oh, right. Uh, Did you speak to the Thames in River? No, 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 no. no. I, there was no river. I was okay, in a okay. South London okay. suburb called oh. Streatham, and there was no river. Oh, Streatham, yes. Venterizer <laughs> um, I got to know a bit later. Um, mainly to begin with from recordings. I, I fell in love with the work of a, of a German baritone called Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau, who was the great leader singer of the 20th century. And I listened to a lot of him singing Winterreiser. But I did actually rather romantically miss my only opportunity to hear him sing Winterreiser because my girlfriend's mother was going out that evening and it meant I could actually spend some time with her at home. So I didn't go and hear Fischer-Dieskau <laughs> sing Winterreiser. <laughs> um, uh, but Winterreiser, um, I, lear I learnt... In fact, the same girlfriend, yeah. I, um, when, she, when she decided she didn't want to go out with me anymore, I was at Oxford, and I thought the best possible way of winning her back was to learn Winterreiser and sing it in a concert in Oxford in January 1985. And she came with her mother and her sister, but it, not surprisingly, it didn't work. But um, that was... That it was, was a bit grim the, as a kind of love song. <laughs> it was the very first time I sang Winterreiser. I thought it was very impressive that I'd learnt all the words. Um, so I, I've been singing, singing them both for a very long time. So, so you have a particular affinity, you think, with Schubert? Yeah. I mean, I think Schubert's one of those composers who people um, develop a sort of personal relationship with. I mean, there's a lot of talk in the academic literature about this idea of my Schubert and how people get very, very mm -hmm. attached to him as a person. But he's, he's very, he's a, it's partly because he's so mysterious. It's difficult to know. You can t there's a sort of... I've called it the Tubby Tunesmith Schubert, who's a sort of jolly fellow who used to play at parties. And but if you read a lot of the comments of his friends, you know he was he was he was up and down, at, you know, withdrawing from the social scene at certain times. I mean, he had a lot to to suffer in his life, and his life was very short. So um, I mean, to suffer the and not he mean to suffer the treatment for syphilis above all, which involved sort of massive quantities of mercury ointment and. Uh, hair falling out, and and also to suffer the fear of what syphilis, if it carried through to tertiary syphilis, might bring in terms of uh, mental de degeneration. And it's one of the interesting 
things in in Winterreiser that you know you end up with this song, one of the most weird and famous songs in 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 the leader tradition, uh, Der Leiermann, the the um, hurdy gurdy player. And you've got this sort of I think it's called is it called non functional harmony? I mean, nothing happened. You're sort of yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of drone that goes yeah. on, right? And yes, and it's you quite finish. You feel it's like somebody crazy playing who can't get out of their repetitive pattern of mental uh, behavior. Right. And of course, you know, it, it's a little bit unfair just to talk about the singer in, in, in leader because obviously the piano plays yeah. such a, a crucial part in this. I mean, how do you uh, understand the piano part in, 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 this, in Schubert's uh, song cycles? I mean, the, the piano is crucial because it's really the invention of the piano um, of a sort of s sustaining quasi-symphonic instrument that allows the development of the leet. I mean, you know, leet just means song. And of course, there have always been songs. But what you get in uh, the 19th century, first of all, in the, in the German tradition, and then it's passed on to, particularly to the French, the melody tradition, you get this um, harmonic complexity and this sense that the piano is a protagonist in some way, or at least, I like to think of it, again, in sort of Freudian terms, that it's as if the the um, the singer is the sort of ego and the uh, and the and the piano is the is two things at once actually it's the id it's these sur it's these surges of emotion um or of psychic the, the psychic phenomenon underlying everything plus of course it's able to imitate um the natural the natural world uh in a in a strange way because it's not clear why i mean it's a, it, i suppose they're, they're, they're sort of um topics aren't they that certain piano figures come to be associated with you know the rustling of leaves or the or the, uh, the bubbling of water, or the most famously in the Schubert song Elkernig, uh, a horse galloping uh, through a forest, just repeated octaves. Da -da 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 now, of course, that doesn't sound anything like a horse, but somehow we're told it's a horse in the poem, and then we think of it as a horse. So, um, so th the piano is absolutely crucial, um, but I suppose in the in the concert situation, it's the the singer is the is the front person who's doing the acting. So uh, the p very often the pianist and the piano part doesn't get enough attention, uh, even from people who should know better. And you know, you often read reviews of leader recitals where the pianist is barely mentioned at all, except to say how, how sensitive, which is the most irritating possible thing to be called if you're a pianist. Um, so no, I mean the piano is, is crucial. No. But also, I, I think, as you said, you know, song has been going on for a long time, mm. but now we have a kind a leader a, a leader tradition developing where. Somehow, as you said, the piano somehow gets sort of inside you, right? It's a kind yeah. of psychological inner commentary uh, yes. on, on, on the poem that's going on. Yeah, and that's what seized me when I first heard it on, 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 on record, I think. But it's a sort of, I mean, it's a limited historical phenomenon. I mean, it comes, it comes it's sort of born in the 1820s. And it, what happens in the course of the 19th century is it gets, um, it starts as a domestic, essentially a domestic genre. I mean, it's, it's one of these things that's on the, Cusp. I mean, something like Winterreiser was wasn't um, or Schoenemunerin. They they weren't performed in concerts. Maybe occasionally ac extracts were. People would have them at home. They'd maybe sing them to themselves. Schubert famously performed Winterreiser to his friends. But Winterreiser wasn't performed as a concert piece in total until the mid 1850s. Um, and then you start to get uh, composers uh, becoming in, uh, more and more involved. It becomes a, a more and more high status art form rather than a low-status art form, which it had been before. Everybody has to uh, compose leader in the German tradition. 
Uh, there are, you know, dozens and dozens of recitals every week in German in German cities in the late nineteenth century, and and the genre becomes more and more complicated. It becomes more and more professionalized um, in the hands of people like Hugo Wolf. Um, it it turns into orchestral song in the hands of someone like Gustav Mahler, and then by the time you get to the twentieth century, that um, sort of professionalization, complication, making it getting more and more difficult, plus the invention of the of the gramophone sort of pulls the rug out from underneath uh, the leet. And I think, you know, there are fewer and fewer people composing leader as you go through the 20th century. And the la for me, the last great leader composer is actually probably um, an English composer, ben Benjamin Britten, who, who loved the leet, performed a lot of leader and composed, you know, seven or eight um, amazing song cycles in the German, tra sort of in the German tradition. Yeah, especially for tenor, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> very nice. Yes. Um, I was also thinking about uh, how a professor uh, uh, that I used to study with, a uh, very famous music theorist called David Lewin, he worked a lot on Schubert, and he always mentioned that Schubert was like this naive genius, because in a way he just wrote a lot of music, he just mm -hmm. kept going. But somehow when you look at this music, I mean, the, the, the profundity there, right? even in a simple song, it's, mm. it's amazing, and you can keep going deeper and deeper. And when you look at the text and the music, there's almost a kind of perfect marriage between yeah. German lyric poetry and the music that Schubert yeah. is writing. I'm just wondering, and for you, I mean, why do you think this type of poetry sort of works so well w with Schubert? Um, it's, I suppose German poetry is quite, of that period is quite, it has a degree of simplicity, but um, certainly compared to, to German prose, and which is much more contorted and complicated to understand, um, for me anyway. Uh, I'd, it's interesting because some of the best songs have ter poems that are terrible um, that, that are on their own. I mean, there's a very amazing song called Der Zwerg, the Dwarf, which uses the, the fate motif from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Dum, 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 goes all the way through. And it's a, it's a gothic melodrama in four minutes about we, we sort of focus in on a ship and on the ship is the dwarf and the queen and the queen has somehow betrayed the dwarf with the king and in the end the, the dwarf um, strangles her with a cord and throws her in the ocean and then we see him sort of sailing off like the flying Dutchman he will never he will sail on forever and never land um, and it's a in many ways it's a completely ridiculous poem um, but it makes Schubert somehow takes the poem, sort of eviscerates it, gives it a gives it some sort of musical meaning, which he drives through it, and uh, the sounds of it, it, you wouldn't want not to have the poem. It's not that the sort of it's good despite the poem. The poem is definitely part of it, the the, the scene that's summoned up, and also the sounds of the words. So um, it's a bit. I always think of it as a, it's it's a sort of it's a mysterious process. The way that. Um, it's like a sort of transubstantiation, the way that a, 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 a poem is turned into a song in that way. Um. And th I mean, the elements, in, particularly in um, uh, Wilhelm Müller's uh, poetry, where he doesn't give you a lot of stuff. I mean, there's a kind mm. of absence there as well, yeah. right? That, that means that, I guess, music can yeah. start articulating, or at least explore that space. And he, he said that himself. He said, I'm just waiting for somebody to, to he said it a couple of times, once in a letter and I think once in public, um, that he was waiting for somebody to compose his his songs, he, they, he almost wrote them to be set to music. And they have this sort of um, very typical romantic strategy of, of leaving a, a, a sort of mystery at the core. We don't quite know what, 
goes on. It's something that, that Byron did and also Walter Scott did in his poetry. So you project the, 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 the readers or the list, they, they project their own experiences onto it and it therefore reflects back much more powerfully. Um, yeah. Now that you've you know, sung these songs for you know, so long, uh, I just wonder whether there were any particular song in either of these cycles that you um, have uh, you've just sort of discovered more and more every time. And it, it just got deeper for you, and you sort of interpret it differently now than you had when you started thirty years ago. Well, the main change in my experience is is is, um, is a more banal one, which is with the first song. It's 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 the longest song in the cycle. And I used to find it unbearably long, and I think thought everyone would got very bored. This is Winterreise. Yeah, the yeah. Gute Nacht. And now I'm much more comfortable with it, and I know how it, how it works. I feel I don't feel uncomfortable delivering it. Um, the I don't, I don't know. I so I sort of see the whole. It, it all seems seems to work as a a whole in a way. Um, that's the thing I suppose I experience and have experienced more as I've as, as I've performed the piece is just experiencing experiencing it as a sort of single arc. Um, I can't think of any particular change in any any one song. What about with pianists? Because you've played, uh, I mean, you've, you've sung these uh, pieces with many different pianists mm. and some extraordinary ones, including mm. uh, Ushida. Yeah. There's a recording with, with her. And then you've worked with uh, people who are just accompanists, accompanists yeah. as they were, like uh, Judith Drake and Graham yeah. Johnson. And then even with the composer Tom Medez, yeah. right? So I'm just wondering, do they contribute to your interpretation or do they, make, do they play in such a way that you know, it really kind of changes things for you? Oh, it definitely does, it, it, but it doesn't always involve um, sort of discussion. It's just it's something that comes out of of performance in a way that, you know, um, I mean, s some musical experiences involve a sort of exchange of ideas and talking about it, but I, I'm always struck by some, a conductor like Claudio Bardo, who, you know, he didn't, he never really did much in the rehearsal or said very much, and it all, was all, it all came out of his hands in the, apparently in the, in the actual concert. And um, with pieces like this that, that both I and the people I'm working with know very well, it sort of happens in the moment. But it does, of course, it makes a huge difference. And it's always the pianist, for example, who sets the tempo. Uh, um, the, most, the most different experience was really working with, with Tom Adas because he, he did, I mean, it, it sounds like a sort of cliche and it's sort of obvious, but he did bring a sort of composer's eye to it. Um, I just did a couple of performances of it. I mean, I've done it with him a lot on tour in the States, on tour in Europe, and then we just did two performances in London, which we recorded. And um, he has, because he's not a, uh, a full-time pianist, he has quite an idiosyncratic piano technique. Um, but also, so he will, he'll, uh, which suits me very well, because he'll do it quite exaggerated things. And he'll bring out, I mean, if you look at the markings in Schubert, they're often quite um, they're quite exaggerated. What he wants to where he wants you to emphasise a word, and it's, it goes against I think one of my bugbears, which is this notion that um, Schubert is a sort of uh, uh, it's something that should be sung just naturally uh, with no interpretation, and that we don't want any interference with it. We just let it happen, which that's anathema to me, and I don't think it's true to what Schubert actually does if you look at the way he marks his work and the way he composes. Um, so Tom would respond to that, and also he looked at the um, he went back and looked at the autograph score, which is in the um, Pierpont Morgan Library in New York. It's a rather extraordinary score. There's it come the first twelve songs. It's actually 
it's actually what he wrote down as he was composing it. So there's sort of crossings out, and it's it's quite difficult to read. The second half is a fair copy, um, but he found really interesting things that nobody had noticed. Uh, uh, different uh, it's chords that were slightly different and slightly odd, rhythms that were slightly different and slightly odd, and things that actually um, bizarrely hadn't been picked up by the um, by the the critical edition, the Baron Wright critical edition, edited by Walter Dürer, um which was a surprise. Right, so that we look forward to that recording. Yeah. And then, uh, what about working with someone like Ushida, where, I mean, obviously she's a concert pianist, so she yeah. would have a very different take on how it should be done, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, she's, uh, she's a wonderful pianist, and it's, it's... But it doesn't seem that... Uh, she's actually the person who sings along. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> But she loves this. She loves this music, and she's known it for you know. She was brought up in. Her father was the uh, Japanese ambassador to Vienna, so she's a sort of Viennese, uh, and it's part of her formation. And, um, and she plays. You know, she plays it wonderfully. So, but it's not singularly. I wouldn't say it's singularly different from doing it with, right. um, uh, a so-called accompanist. Right. 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 Um, with these two cycles, I think it's nice to put it in a bit of context because, in a way, um, both of them are a little bit dark. Um, yeah. And uh, also, I mean, th th there's aspects about them of, of loneliness and alienation, this kind of death wish, yeah. and this kind of, full, uh, this, I guess, uh, unrequited love that's sort of just yeah. haunting the whole thing. I mean, how, I mean, and, and also, I mean, the other thing about this that, you know, uh, that you should know is that this, so these two song cycles sort of became part of the whole German psyche, really. I mean, mm. they were sort of not only a tradition that was sung, but it became part of what it meant to be German mm -hmm. and that whole sense of identity. That's why I think people can sort of get, you know, sing yeah. along with these, uh, with, with these Schubert songs. So maybe you can fill us a little bit in about uh, the, con the historical context for this type of rather grim sort of narrative. That sort of just takes hold of the German imagination. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a tradition in writing about Germany um, that sort of this idea of a of a the Zonderweg, the, the the exceptional past that Germany took, and trying to explain why Germany reached what it reached in uh, in the Nazi time, um, and it looks back into the 19th century and it tries to find roots in even in German, first certain things about German romanticism, this sort of uh, death, ob death obsession, and it's sort of something as if there's something unhealthy about it. And I think it's probably, I think that's sort of probably barking up the wrong tree because, um, you know, um, I am myself, what is it, I am half in, uh, in love with easeful death, as something Keats says. It's, it's, um, it's a common romantic trope. And it's also a common feature of human experience, I think. And, and again, you find it in, I mean, it's a German. Uh, psychoanalysis is German. But still, you, this sort of the poles of, you know, of eros and thanatos of, of, of sex and death, they do dominate, you know, and, bi you know, biologically, that they are dominant features of, of, of human experience. So I, um, I think the leader tradition reflects that. And I... Uh, but it did become a very important part of uh, of German culture. A some of the songs that Schubert composed became, as it were, folk songs. Uh, particularly the fifth song of uh, Winterreise, Der Lindenbaum, the, lind the, the linden tree, which was sort of slightly bastardized and simplified by a by a German composer in the mid nineteenth century, and became the sort of song that people sang when they went hiking or out with the Boy Scouts. Um, and then. Uh, 
I think it's in, it, particularly, I talk about this in my book, um, in a novel by Thomas Mann called The, the Magic Mountain, he, which is a, is, a, is, a, is a funny book because it's, it's written, he, he started it um, probably, I think, around, you know, he wrote the very famous novella Death in Venice in 1912, and then the First World War broke out, and I think Magic Mountain was the project that was on the boil all this time. He didn't write, really write another novel, having written the famous novel Buddenbrooks earlier. He didn't really write another novel until the 1920s. But in the, at the beginning of the First World War, he was a real arch-German nationalist, um, sort of, you know, was there for German culture, the idea of culture, uh, sort of deep culture against frivolous French civilization, the, 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 the idea that there was something specially culture-bearing about, about, about the German people. Um, and he then, at the end of the war, he turned against that greatly. And, and in a way, The Magic Mountain, which is a, is a novel set in a, in a sanatorium uh, where somebody is sort of uh, consumed by possibly imagined tuberculosis. But it's, it, it's, a, it's, an it's a sort of an apologia for, for that attitude. It's sort of saying there, is some there was something sick and unhealthy about German culture, and I was part of it, and here I'm... I'm saying goodbye to it. And one of the central ways he expresses that in The Magic Mountain is by the introduction of the song, Der Lindenbaum, the one I just talked about, the one that became a folk song, and, and, and saying that that is a sort of um, symbol of German longing for death. And he, he puts it into a scene in the sanatorium. But then at the very end of the book, the guy in the sanatorium leaves and goes off to fight in the trenches in the, in the First World War, and he sings uh, one of the lines from Der Lindenbaum as he's sort of going over the top and marching through the mud. And, so it, it, it definitely does have that image in German culture, but I'm not sure it's entirely, it's not, I'm not sure it's that simple. Right, right. But this is this kind of the German culture that leads to war, as it were. And I think yeah. actually, I mean, just as a kind of uh, counterpart to the Thomas Mann mm -hmm. Magic Mountain, there's, of course, Dr. Faustus, yeah. where it's really a Beethoven Schoenberg book that basically does the whole thing again, as yeah. it were, but from, from the lens of Beethoven and Schoenberg. So there's yeah. obviously something very musical about Thomas Mann. Um, but you, let, let's bring it back, you know, from this very long kind of historical trajectory and go back to the time of Schubert. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you mentioned briefly there that, that you thought that politics also played quite a strong role uh, in the formation of these poems and these songs. Yeah. And what, what is this context? Because most people would put it, you know, I mean, this kind of death wish and all that kind of an alienation in the context of poor old Schubert, you know, he's dying and, and all that kind of stuff. But obviously he wouldn't have known he was necessarily dying when he was yeah. writing... Uh, these song cycles. So well, I think he knew he, he did know he was dying. That's the thing. I mean, he didn't die of what he would have died of. Right. He probably died of um, of, of eating some bad fish or something. But he would have died in the end of syphilis, and he would have been aware of that. Um, but uh, there's just a sort of political under code, little coded messages. The whole the whole idea of a winter time. The whole idea of uh, there's there's one particular there's one that I decoded which I I mean it's trivial but I liked the fact that I managed to decode it which is there's a um, the tenth song of Winterizer is called Rast or Rest and in the second verse of it um, he um, he takes refuge from this snowy landscape in a in the narrow house of a charcoal burner and it always seemed very very specific to me and I wondered why on earth it was a charcoal burner and then it became clear to me that actually Müller was putting in this a charcoal burner because charcoal burner in it uh, he was Müller wrote a book about Italy as part and fulfilled that with secret political protest 
and the, the revolutionaries in the nationalist revolutionaries in Italy who were fighting against the the the, the Austrian domination of of and the and the, the, the Neapolitan domination of, of 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 parts of Italy. They were called the Carbonari, which means charcoal burners. So here's this sort of little secret uh, pointer towards. It's like you know this is a Winterizer. It, it's not that it's a political. It's not a piece of political action. It's not even a piece of political theatre. But people could sing it and, uh, and perform it together and feel, I suppose, unified in a state of sort of silent protest. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of solidarity in that way, maybe. It's not just what it appears on the surface, it's, uh, which is a, you know, a, a song cycle about alienation and disappointed love and so on. Right. What about, um, we, we talked about it a little bit just now about uh, reading Schubert's life Mm -hmm. uh, into this, a little bit about death, but I mean, what about other aspects of his life? Do you, uh, do you understand these songs also from a, kind of, as it were, a kind of biographical angle in terms of Schubert's own experiences? Y yes, I mean, he definitely, um, I think he would have been seized by certain aspects of, um, of Winterizer when he, when he got his hands on the poems, which related to his own life. I mean, the first song always seemed a bit of a mystery to me, uh, the first poem. Um, it's it, uh, a man is leaving a, ha a house in the middle of the night, leaving uh, behind, uh, it says, the, the girl talked of love, the, the mother of marriage, and he's going out into a snowy landscape. You think, why was this man staying in this house? Who was he? What, how can we make sense of it socially in the 1820s, uh, a man staying in a house and then leaving? What was his relationship to the, this family? And one way of understanding it that came to me is that he's actually... Um, House, a house tutor. This is a very common phenomenon. It's, it starts in, in fiction in the, in the 18th century in, in, in Rousseau's Nouvelle Héloïse, but it's also the experience of a lot of the sort of philosophers and thinkers of the, of, of, of the, um, of, of the late 18th and early 19th century that they worked as, as tutors, private tutors in the, in the houses of the upper middle class. And sometimes got into trouble, uh, either with the daughter or with, in the case of Hölderlin, the poet, he fell in love with, with, with the wife. So, and this happened to Schubert. Uh, he went to teach the um, Esterhazy girls in Zelitz in Hungary, and he sort of fell in love with one of them. And so I think this would have, you know, he would have felt a connection with that poem. And similarly, I think he would have felt a connection, as I said before, with the, with the, the idea that this, this cycle ends with a vision of, a, of a, an old destitute musician, the Lyaman, the, the hurdy-gurdy man, playing in the snow with, with gnarled fingers and repeating the same thing over and over again. He would have seen that partly as a vision of, you know, the insecurity and poverty of the musician and partly as a prediction of his own mental uh, degeneration. Yeah. So there are, I think there are always, I don't think we should shy away from the biographical. I think there's a, there's a sort of embarrassment about biographical criticism, which I don't really understand. I mean, I, 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 um, I think it's the human interest of, of, of music is important. I mean, music is not, isn't a sort of, it's not a cosmic, um, detached, uh, absolute thing. It's actually, it's, a, it's an expression of human interest and human emotion and, and human relationships. I mean, that's why people make music. That's what music is about. Uh, particularly in that period where life and yeah. art kind of merged, really, yeah. uh, with a lot of these romantics. Because I think the talk of tutors is very, uh, would uh, sort of ring a bell in Hong Kong, because Hong Kong people love 
tutors. I mean, right. you know, so maybe the, the winterize will mean new things right. <laughs> in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about uh, other aspects that are, that are common between the two cycles? I mean, there's a lot about nature. I mean, nature seems to be almost a, a protagonist or, or some yeah. sort of character, right, in, in both yeah. Uh, cycles. Yes. I mean, in in the first cycle, I mean, the, the, you can see the 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 brook, the the Bechlein that he starts talking to as a sort of cozy, friendly figure. But I suppose it in the end, it's the it's the crazy relationship with the brook that leads him to commit suicide, and he does commit suicide by jumping into the brook. So it's 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 cozy, but maybe at the same time threatening. It's a bit fairy tale somehow. Um, in Winterizer, you've you've got um, aspects of nature which are you know you've got the you've you've got the icy cold you've got things blowing into his face uh, particularly striking you've got this uh, crow uh, about halfway through the cycle that follows him circling above his head in a very creepy way it's a wonderful piece of writing in the piano um, and is basically waiting he knows he's waiting for him to collapse so that he can pick his bones and there's something. Almost sort of erotic in the re in the relationship. The sort of re it's the, the erotic death. The sort of um, yeah. yeah. And nature also. I mean, I because I'm, I'm a Beethoven scholar, so it, it seems very different from Beethoven's relationship mm. with nature, which is always you know in the pastoral symphony, much more uh, religious in a way. Whereas right. Schubert, it's, nature seems to be very well objective, and uh, even though you read so much into nature, nature in the end. Yeah, it's funny because I mean that it's it's. Yeah, I mean, in Winterizer, I think nature is the whole thing is that you can try and nature is 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 outside and it's 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 either it doesn't care. I mean, this is the thing about the period in which Schubert's growing up. It is the beginning. I mean, there had this thing has had many beginnings, but it is a period in which, um, deep, for example, deep time is being discovered. That, that uh, you know, the idea that it isn't that the, the universe is 4,000 years old. It's actually much, much older. Things have been going on for a long time. It, it, human beings seem smaller. The universe seems bigger. There seems maybe a, l a loss of personal relationship to the universe and to the natural world uh, and a feeling of a, what was it, deus absconditus that, it, that maybe got... I mean, Schubert's complicated because he's clearly... His attitude to religion is a conflicted one. I mean, he's uh, he writes some very pious pieces, but he's also... He leaves out bits of uh, crucial bits of um, of the mass to, to to signal the fact that he's not actually a really a totally orthodox Catholic, um, and uh, and it, you know there's I I don't know what, what the, the the big symphony the great is 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 seen by many people as a sort of deist sort of reaction to the glory of the mountains and uh, but I I think Schubert's universe is much more scary it's a it's a it's a universe where human beings are alone it's a sort of existentialist as I said before, sort of Beckettian universe, where um, we mustn't fantasize that there's any th any consolation. Oh, very grim. Um, maybe, maybe two questions before we open it out to, uh, to the floor. Um, the first is, what, what is your most memorable performance of uh, either of the Schubert cycles, or the most surprising performance you've ever given? <laughs> um, oh, golly. Um, in a totally vain way, uh, and probably ignoble way, um, I, d I did a performance at the Barbican Theatre, uh, Barbican Concert Hall in London, with Thomas Addis just after my book had been published. And the Barbican Concert Hall is a sort of big concert hall. And I thought, oh my God, nobody's going to come. But because the book had come out and it had been on the radio, 
it was full and it was incredibly in a very um, childish and naive way very ex very exciting that there were so many people there and it created a different a different audience creates a different dynamic and it made it a much bigger Winterreiser. I mean Vin these pieces were written for small well they weren't written for anything but they were first performed in small domestic environments and y the ideal is always thought to be you know um, a, a hall like the Wigmore Hall in London you know 500 seats or but to perform Winterreiser in a big hall like Carnegie Hall or like La Scala or the Barbican, you just create a different sort of piece and it's very exciting. And I found performing in all those three places very exciting in a very, as I said, in a slightly, you're not really supposed to say that, it's a bit ignoble, but it's exciting to, to do these pieces in big spaces, big famous spaces. Um, the most influential thing on me in doing Winterizer was really um, making a film about it in the Schubert Bicentenary year in 1997, because I think I'd been until then quite sort of classical and balanced in my approach to it but making this film I worked with a director called David Alden and he sort of pushed me to the edge and I found it at the time very irritating uh, and we made a film about it that showed how irritating it seemed but in the end I think over the years it's had a big influence on, on how I do it. Um, with Shona Müllerin, I shy away from it. Shona Müllerin is actually much more difficult than Winterreiser because it's sort of, it's perfect and it requires much more careful approach to the voice in Winterizer. So it's, um, I don't have so many memorable experiences of it, somehow. The scary one's about having to be perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's Winterizer sort of winds down. So I mean, if you, if you feel, it's a long thing, and if you, f you, it, it's, you could almost speak Winterizer. I mean, it's, whereas you really have to be on vocal, you know, have to really concentrate. Right, and it's much more of a narrative with yes. with a Muller in, and also it ends fast. I mean, it has a, it's, it's a big ending. I mean, Yeah, it suddenly degenerates. You know, you, you go along to the 12th song and then suddenly it's all the way down. Right, yeah. yeah. But the second question was, uh, you know, because some of us are sort of just getting into leader, into these Schubert song mm -hmm. cycles. So what's the best way of really getting into this music? I mean, uh, next, I'm not singing them because we're not all capable of doing that. Yeah. But what, I what is the best way of sort of um, trying to get a grip of this music? Well, I, I still think that Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau is the greatest singer of this music and that everybody should listen to him singing it. I mean, it's not... His aesthetic is um, very different from mine. And I, w I always used to worry when I was younger that he was... I knew him a bit and I was always worried that he was going to come to a concert and hate it. And in fact, I'd, sometimes I used to... Fant I used to there used to be somebody in the audience who looked a bit like him and I'd think, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> because he was quite, you know, his demeanour was quite classical in a way. Although, he, as he got older, it got a bit more expressionistic. But anyway, he never did come to one of my concerts, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> well, so I think go to his, so he didn't yeah. go to yours. But I think the thing about classical, I mean, not all, I mean, I don't know. I, th I think the thing about most really things that are worth investigating culturally is that they benefit from preparation. And you get more, the more you put in, the more you get out. And I think we live in a culture where... Um, quite often people just want to something to be to immediately get it mm. and i think you know it's worth prepare i mean none of us have time of course but it's worth preparing to go to a leader recital it's worth looking at the texts before you go to the concert because then you can look at the singer and the pianist and not sort of be looking at the text uh it's worth reading my book about intros uh, <laughs> it's and it's worth available in our bookshop <laughs> and it's worth listening to to diff maybe to different different singers different styles so we've got so much available now uh, uh so easily on on YouTube and Spotify, you can hear the different ways people have done it over the years, and uh, that's fascinating in itself. So yeah, I think um, 
a little bit of immersion and then go to go to leader recitals because they are that's the thing that's the real thing that's that's it's a and it, you know it's a, it's an art form that's developed it's not anything Schubert in a sense would have recognised it's developed historically and it's become a particular sort of thing at this particular time um, but it's I think it's a it's a wonderful development and a very intense and direct form of of music making. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just as dramatic as, as opera, but without all the sort of distractions. Perform, I don't know. So it'd be great if you could really get into Lida in Hong Kong. It'd be a, w a wonderful opportunity for you to, as you listen to these two concerts, to really find something new and refreshing, and maybe also to start a, a tradition here too. Thank you so much, Ian, for this wonderful, enlightening time. Thank you very Ian much. Foster.